history they married. In the 90-passenger tour boats tied together in the Missouri River in the gates of the mountains at the spot where Lewis and Clark camped on the night of July 19, 1805. I read aloud Lewis's journal entry for that day. John and Steph lived today in Helena with our grandsons. Our son Barry and our daughter-in-law Celeste named our granddaughter Karina Sacagawea Ambrose. The grandchildren have accompanied us on many trips on the river and through the Bitterroots and camped with us at Limai. Many other friends and students have been on the trail with us, far too many to name. We are grateful to all of our companions for their enthusiasm and good spirits. An especially memorable trip came in 1993 when we invited the smartest and best people we know to join us for a Missouri River trip, a July 4th camp out at Limai, and a horseback crossing of the Lolo Trail. I was getting ready to write this book and wanted to know what questions popped into bright people's minds after a day on the trail and a reading of the journals around the campfire. I got exactly what I sought, good fellowship, shared hardships, and never-ending questions. This book has been a labor of love. We have endured summer snowstorms at Limai Pass on July 4, 1986, terrible thunderstorms in canoes on the Missouri and Columbia rivers, soaking rains on the Lolo Trail, and innumerable moments of exhilaration on the Lewis and Clark Trail. The Lewis and Clark experience has brought us together so many times in so many places that we cannot measure or express what it has meant to our marriage and our family. We feel privileged to have had the opportunity to spend so much time with Meriwether Lewis and with our students, friends, and children in the last best place. Undaunted Courage by Stephen E. Ambrose From the west-facing window of the room in which Meriwether Lewis was born on August 18, 1774, one could look out at Rockfish Gap in the Blue Ridge Mountains, an opening to the west that invited exploration. Traces of the old buffalo trail that led up Rockfish River to the Gap still remained. Deer were exceedingly plentiful, black bear common. Beaver were on every stream, flocks of turkeys thronged the woods, In the fall and spring, ducks and geese darkened the rivers. If it was the West that invited exploration, it was the East that could provide education and knowledge, where the hunting was magnificent but plantation society provided refinement and enlightenment. It was a place where Meriwether Lewis could learn wilderness skills while sharpening his wits about such matters as surveying, politics, natural history, and geography. The West was very much on Virginians' minds in 1774 even though the big news that year was the Boston Tea Party. In September, the First Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, and revolution was underway. Meriwether Lewis was born on the eve of revolution into a world of conflict between Americans and the British government for control of the Trans-Appalachian West in a colony whose Western ambitions were limitless. His family had been a part of the Western movement from the beginning. Thomas Jefferson described Lewis's forebears as one of the distinguished families of Virginia, and among the earliest. The first Lewis to come to America had been Robert, a Welshman and an officer in the British Army. 
The family coat of arms was Omne Solum Forti Patria Est, or All Earth is to a brave man his country. Robert arrived in 1635 with a grant from the king for 33,333 and a third acres of Virginia land. He had numerous progeny, including Colonel Robert Lewis, who was wonderfully successful on the Virginia frontier of the 18th century. On his death, Colonel Lewis was wealthy enough to leave all nine of his children with substantial plantations. His fifth son, William, inherited 1,896 acres and slaves and a house, Locust Hill, just seven miles west of Charlottesville, within sight of Monticello. In 1769, William Lewis, then 31 years old, married his cousin, 22-year-old Lucy Merriweather. The Merriweather family was also Welsh and also land-rich. By 1730, the family held a tract near Charlottesville of 17,952 acres. George R. Gilmer, later a governor of Georgia, wrote of the family, None ever looked at or talked with a Merriweather, but he heard something which made him look or listen again. The Lewis and Merriweather families had long been close-knit and interrelated. Indeed, there were eleven marriages joining Lewis's and Merriweather's between 1725 and 1774. A year after their marriage, William and Lucy Lewis had their first child, a daughter they named Jane. Meriwether Lewis was born in 1774. Three years later, a second son, Reuben, was born. In 1775, war broke out. Jefferson noted that when it came, William Lewis was happily situated at home with a wife and young family, and a fortune placed him at ease. Nevertheless, he left all to aid in the liberation of his country from foreign usurpations. Like General Washington, he served without pay. Going Washington one better, he bore his own expenses as his patriotic contribution to his country. Meriwether Lewis scarcely knew his father, for Lieutenant Lewis was away making war for most of the first five years of his son's life. In November 1779, Lieutenant Lewis spent a short leave with his family at Cloverfields, a Meriwether family plantation where his wife Lucy had grown up. He said his goodbyes, swung onto his horse, and rode to the Ravenna River, swollen in flood. Attempting to cross, his horse was swept away and drowned. Lewis managed to swim ashore and hiked back to Cloverfields, drenched. Pneumonia set in, and in two days, he was dead. People in the late 18th century were helpless in matters of health. They lived in constant dread of sudden death from disease, plague, epidemic, pneumonia, or accident. Painful as the death of an honored and admired father was to a son, it was a commonplace experience. What effect it may have had on Meriwether cannot be known. In any case, he was quickly swept up into his extended family. Nicholas Lewis, William Lewis's older brother, became Meriwether's guardian. Less than six months after his father's death, another man came into Meriwether's life. On May 13, 1780, his mother married Captain John Marks. Virginia widows in those days commonly remarried as soon as possible. Lucy Meriwether Lewis Marks was a remarkable woman. She bore five children, two by John Marks. She had a strong constitution. She buried two husbands and lived to be almost 86 years old. She could be stern and spartan, but her son loved her dearly. Although he was scarcely ever with her from age 14 on, he was a faithful and considerate correspondent. When Meriwether was eight or nine years old, his stepfather, Captain Marks, migrated with a number of Virginians to a colony being developed on the Broad River in northeastern Georgia. Meriwether lived in Georgia for three, perhaps four years. It was frontier country, and he learned frontier skills. 
he gloried in the experience. Jefferson later wrote that he was remarkable even in infancy for enterprise, boldness, and discretion. When only eight years of age, he habitually went out in the dead of night alone with his dogs into the forest to hunt the raccoon and opossum. Curious and inquisitive, as well as cool-headed and courageous, he delighted his mother by wanting to know the names and characteristics of the trees, bushes, shrubs, and grasses, of the animals, the fish, the birds, and the insects. He wanted to know the why as well as the way of things. Meriwether Lewis was a youngster of considerable substance and responsibility, for under Virginia's law of primogeniture, he had inherited his father's estate. This included a plantation of nearly 2,000 acres, 520 pounds in cash, 24 slaves, and 147 gallons of whiskey. Though it was being managed by Nicholas Lewis, it would soon be Meriwether's to run. His mother agreed that he should return to Virginia at about age 13 to obtain a formal education and prepare himself for his management responsibilities. There were no public schools in 18th century Virginia. Planters' sons got their education by boarding with teachers, almost always preachers or parsons, who could instruct them in Latin, mathematics, natural science, and English grammar. In the fall of 1787, Meriwether began to study with Parson Matthew Morey, one of Thomas Jefferson's teachers. Meriwether transferred in 1790 to Reverend James Waddell. In October 1792, Meriwether returned from a visit with his sister Jane, who had shown him a letter their mother had written that summer. From it he learned that Captain Marks had died, leaving his mother once again a widow, with Reuben plus the two younger children to care for. Mrs. Marks wanted Meriwether to come to Georgia to organize a move back to Virginia for her and her dependents. By fall he had gone to Georgia organized the move of his mother and her children and the slaves, animals, and equipment, and brought the whole back to Virginia, where he set up at Locust Hill and began his life as a planter and head of household. Thus ended Meriwether Lewis's career as a scholar. What had he learned? He was an avid reader of journals of exploration, especially those about the adventures of Captain James Cook. He got his figures down pretty well, along with a solid base in botany and natural history. He picked up all he could about geography. He had achieved the educational level of the well-rounded Virginian, who was somewhat familiar with the classics, reasonably current with philosophy. Only in the field of plantation affairs was he expected to be a specialist, and to that end, Lewis now set out. He may have done so with some regret, for he valued education highly. At age 18, he was the head of a small community of about two dozen slaves and nearly 2,000 acres of land. His lessons from now on would be in management, in soils, crops, distillery, carpentry, blacksmithing, shoemaking, weaving, coopering, timbering, in killing, dressing, and skinning cattle and sheep, preserving vegetables and meats, repairing plows, harrows, saws, and rifles, caring for horses and dogs, treating the sick, and the myriad of other tasks that went into running a plantation. He had shown himself to be a self-reliant, self-contained, self-confident teenager, his health was excellent, his physical powers were outstanding, he was sensitive and caring about his mother and his family. He was started. From the time he was able to sit astride a horse, Meriwether Lewis was a fine, fearless rider. He became an excellent judge of horses and an expert in their care. Jefferson, believing that the taming of the horse had resulted in the degeneracy of the human body, urged the young to walk for exercise. Lewis took his advice and became a great hiker, with feet as rough as his butt. 
Plantation management required attention to detail and sharp observation. In these areas, Lewis excelled. Along with his perseverance, all his life Lewis prided himself on his honesty. These qualities were important for his self-esteem. His word, written and spoken, was his bond. In the years following the Revolution, life on the Virginia plantation had much to recommend it. There was the reality of political independence. There were the balls and dinners, the entertainment. There was freedom of religion. The political talk about the nature of man and the role of government has not been surpassed at any time or any place since. If life on the plantation had something of a Garden of Eden quality to it, there was a snake in the garden, for all of it rested on the backs of slaves. Those backs were crisscrossed with scars because slavery relied on the lash. Slavery worked through terror and violence. There was no other way to force men to work without compensation. Lewis was successful at adding land to his holdings, something critical to a Virginia planter because the Virginia plantation of the day was incredibly wasteful. Tobacco wore out land so fast there could never be enough. But tobacco never brought in enough money to allow planters to get ahead. Their speculation in land was done on credit and promises and warrants, not cash. So they were always land rich and cash poor. Thomas Jefferson did not marry until one year short of his 30th birthday. Lewis never married. In this they were unusual. The gentry commonly married very young and were soon encumbered with families. Although Lewis was good at running Locust Hill, he did so only out of necessity. He was increasingly unhappy with the sedentary life of a planter. His mother was now well re-established in the family home, and she was fully capable of running the plantation. His desire to see new lands, to explore, to experience, to roam, was insatiable. So, as Jefferson wrote, at the age of twenty, yielding to the ardor of youth and a passion for more dazzling pursuits, he engaged as a volunteer in the body of militia which were called out by General Washington to quell the Whiskey Rebellion. Fewer than one out of ten Americans, about half a million people, lived west of the Appalachian Mountains. But as the Whiskey Rebellion had shown, they were already disposed to think of themselves as the germ of an independent nation that would find its outlet to the world marketplace not across the mountains to the Atlantic seaboard but by the Ohio and Mississippi River system to the Gulf of Mexico. In addition, it seemed unlikely that one nation could govern an entire continent. The distances were just too great. A critical fact in the world of 1801 was that nothing moved faster than the speed of a horse. No human being, no manufactured item, no bushel of wheat, no cider.